And fuckers, good to be with you. It's Max in the studio. I am solo today because, uh, well, for two reasons. Number one is that September is the beginning of our busy season. I think I mentioned that in the newsletter. And as such, 99's responsibilities in our day jobs are absolutely crushing. So she's been kind of working around the clock making that happen. And she picked up an uninvited visitor along the way in making all that happen. A little visitor named covid but she's on the mend. She's feeling better. You can send her your well wishes through social media or you can email us, what, what, you know, whatever you prefer. But know that she's doing great and we are anxiously awaiting the moment where we can be back in the studio together. But we have a lot of stuff to get through. So I'm going to try to get through this as, as, as best I can solo. First thing I want to bring up is uh, just to thank Brad Onishi for helping prevent me droning on and on in the last part of uh, the Socialism series, the the final episode before the epilogue. So in part five, Brad Onishi was kind enough to lend his vocal talents to us. I also want to congratulate him. This is Brad from Straight White American Jesus. Uh, They've actually founded their own media company now to bring, I think, some other shows into the fold and to really, you know, take their game to the next level. They're growing rapidly. They're doing great. So our best wishes to all the folks there over at Straight White American Jesus, and thanks to Brad for helping us out. And uh, just a quick weird shout-out here. We got a recent follow on Instagram from Jumani Williams. And the reason that's so cool is that I had the good fortune of being able to vote for Jumani Williams in the last gubernatorial primary in New York. So I thought that was pretty neat that he's following us. So shout-out to him. He's the public advocate in New York City right now, hopefully. Someday the governor, we'll see. But kind of neat to be followed by a true progressive. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is, you know, of all the comments that we get on YouTube, they're mostly positive. But we I did an early episode in it was kind of like an introductory episode to our fuck Milton Friedman concept, just talking about the differences between Keynes and Friedman and the nature of markets, the illusory nature of markets uh, as, you know, sort of taught to me by Bernard Harcourt through the illusion of free markets, the book. But uh, that's the one that I typically get the most negative feedback from. So I think it's about time to do a full FMF unfucking on YouTube. Going to take me a little while to pull together because that's one of the longer episodes. But I think I think we should get that done. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's time. And without further ado, let's get into headlines so we can get going today. The first one is actually from Mother Jones. And I've titled this in the newsletter, Bannon is playing chess while the rest of us play checkers. But Bannon's not specifically mentioned in this article. And it's a good article to check out. So Mother Jones basically talks about all of the key figures that are in positions of power over electoral politics in the states specifically. And it's actually pretty frightening. So you have election deniers from governors to state legislators and all the way down the chain that are somehow involved in overseeing the state-run election processes. And it's going to be kind of a terrifying time, I think, when we get up to the next presidential election, when you have maybe it's Trump, maybe it's DeSantis, probably not. But there's a pretty good chance that you're going to have an election denier atop the ticket on the Republican side. And you're going to have a number of states that, you know, have processes that are run by election deniers. So that can't end well. And it reminded me actually to surface a few of the interviews from Naomi Klein has been making the rounds on talk shows. I actually listened to her on the Mark Maron podcast and it was a great interview. 
because Marin is a fan of Klein and she's promoting her new book, Doppelganger, which talks about the confusion with Naomi Wolf. And personal anecdote here, for those of you that don't know Naomi Wolf, she was formerly kind of a progressive fixture, although a little bit more on the spiritual Marianne Williamson, the health and wellness kind of the, the side of the movement. Uh, and she has steadily moved over to the right-wing conspiracy side of things and can usually be found in the right-wing ecosystem. But she's often confused with the estimable Naomi Klein from Canada, who is truly a progressive writer, author, activist, and, and so on. But I have to confess that I actually, years ago, I think friended Naomi Wolf on Facebook just very casually. I was just going through people and I was like, oh, Naomi Wolf. And in my head, converted it to Naomi Klein. Well, it turns out I'm not the only one that's done that. And Naomi Klein is often mistaken for uh, Naomi Wolf. So in today's performance, the part of 99 will be played by many faces. The question is, are you the only one that pronounces Wolf? Wolf, because because between Naomi Wolf and Richard Wolf, it's always Wolf with you. Just just saying. For those of you that don't know Naomi Wolf, go Naomi Wolf. And Naomi Klein is often mistaken for uh, Naomi Wolf. So check out the interviews with her, and if you get a chance to get your hands on Doppelganger, uh, give it a read. I have it, but I'm not into it yet. But just listening to her interviewed about it is is pretty great. But it talks about sort of the state. This weird dystopian state that we're in about not believing anything that we see. And she uses the doppelganger. She uses that trope as kind of a metaphor for the things that we come to believe and the narratives that we come to believe and the stories that we tell tell ourselves within these ecosystems, within these, these echo chambers, rather. So really interesting stuff. But check out that article from Mother Jones. We'll obviously link it in show notes. And the second headline here is Beware the Libertarian Urban Planner in Progressive Clothing. This is an article from Current Affairs. The Strong Towns Movement is Simply Right Libertarianism. I guess I would call it their cover story from the most recent one. You know that we've been trying to collaborate with uh, Nathan Robinson of late, and I've been taking a keen interest in what's going on in the magazine. What's interesting about this article is that the urban planning movement to incorporate more greenways, more bicycle paths, make it more walkable, has kind of been pushed to the side in some of the very quotable urban planning centers that have been responsible for the way that urban centers and uh, suburban areas have grown in this country. And even though it seems like the Strong Towns movement has a very principled, eco-friendly stance and, and is in favor of those type of walkability standards, the way that they're approaching it and the things that they're bringing to the markets, because it's a the movement, it's a spiritual movement among urban planners and there's a lot of followers to it. But th what they're bringing to the table is a very libertarian minded, how to build for the individual and not for the collective type of mindset. So really interesting article. It's, it's a long one because it is their cover feature, but uh, check out the most recent issue of Current Affairs or go to the website because I think it's the top story still on uh, their website at currentaffairs.org. And with that, let's switch gears and get into some feedback, starting off with our buddy Old Turk who said, so... Bidenomics is three kids in a trench coat? Yes, old Turk, I kind of think it is. Hopefully I had a pretty nuanced take in the Bidenomics episode. Uh, we had we did have some nice feedback on that. What's difficult and, and tricky about this time in talking about Bidenomics is that there really is 
a lot of good stuff happening, but still more so at the top of the industrial sector in the U.S. economy. This idea of building out from the middle out and the bottom up is not taking root. And at the same time, while companies at the top are doing well and profit margins are really healthy and executive compensation is big and stock buybacks have, have been all of the rage, they're we're seeing a situation where all of the money that's promised in the Infrastructure Act and promised through the Recovery Act, promised through the Inflation Reduction Act, as an example, all of that money has to kind of work together because the Inflation Reduction Act has a number of programs to get, uh, you know, the renewable industry off the ground here to make our, oh, you've got the CHIPS Act in there as well. So all of these different stimulus plans and packages are meant to be coordinated and to work together. So it was originally going to be part of that really big spending bill that the Democrats, you know, wanted to pull across the finish line. And then it got broken up into several different movements. If you cobble them together, it all kind of does make sense, but it still makes sense for the for the very established corporate class to go after these contracts. And what's fascinating is that the money that's allocated is just beginning to be spent. So we've already seen private investments in anticipation of this money flowing through the system. And what's going to be really interesting is, let's say, nightmare scenario, the Democrats lose the next election with whoever's on top of the ticket. Maybe Biden makes it through. Maybe he doesn't. But the Democrats lose. The Republicans take over. With the mandate from the far right in the Republican Party right now, it's almost impossible to see a situation where they do not move to immediately reverse all of the investments that are being made through the multiple stimulus acts. Likewise, if the Democrats do take hold, they're going to need at least the next four years and then maybe a little bit beyond to fully move all of that money through the system, see what works, see what didn't work, and to see how it impacted the economy. But I, I, I got to say, I just don't see it impacting the real economy at the bottom in the way that they're intending it to do it, because we're talking about manufacturing sectors, big corporate investments, matching funds from private investments, and it going to firms that are already existing. Will there be a support economy outside of that? Yeah, probably, but not to any greater extent than we already have supporting you know, uh, industries and sort of you know, uh, sub-industries that support the, the greater whole now. So... Interesting to, to think about how this is all going to roll out. It's like if the Republicans take over, I, I see them trying to reverse as much of that as possible. And now all this private investment kind of goes for naught and just sort of, you know, sits there dormant because the public investment side of things didn't come through. If the Democrats do it, they will flush all this money through the system. And the amount of capital that is going to course through the corporate class is going to be extraordinary. But that doesn't necessarily pretend recovery for the bottom end of the spectrum especially if labor is not united in making demands in anticipation of all the money that's going to be spent. So anyway, uh, moving on, we've got Dan H. who said, love the topical rant on AOC hate from the left. I'll admit that I'm not very plugged into this conversation on the day to day. So I appreciate learning about the situation and your critique within our end of the political spectrum. The takeaway feels simple. Rather than yelling at people we already agree with to do more, we should be electing more people we agree with in the first place. To that end, is UNFTR planning to highlight a few primary races next year that we should all be supporting? Yes. Uh, so thank you for the feedback on the AOC episode. It didn't land that way for everybody, by the way, and we'll get into some of that. But, you know, hopefully I made a compelling enough case 
that we should be supporting as many progressives within the caucus so that our numbers can grow and we can truly wield some influence within the political class. More to the point, yes, we are going to be highlighting some primary races, and we're also going to start doing something in uh, maybe about a month or so that we build into the newsletter. There's going to be a lot of changes to the newsletter coming up. There's also going to be some changes to the memberships. So uh, look out for those announcements coming soon. Uh, but we're going to add something called uh, a progressive spotlight so that we can actually do something on a weekly basis that highlights progressives that are already elected, progressives trying to get elected, or just progressive voices outside of the political system that are making demonstrable change in whatever way they, uh, they try to. So now we have S.B. Jones. Listening to the AOC episode did make me start to think about parallels between how AOC is treated and how Katie Porter is treated. I feel like I can't go more than a couple of weeks without hearing a negative story on AOC, but I don't generally see these type of stories about Katie Porter. I'm sure Katie Porter has annoyed a lot of powerful people with her whiteboard, and it's always fun to see her make points with it, but I don't see as many negative stories about her, and I do think it's probably down to the different ethnicity of the two. It would be interesting to hear your take on the different treatment of these two politicians in show notes. All right, so here we are in show notes, and my take is this. Katie Porter is a milk toast white woman who is on the progressive end of the spectrum. And, you know, I love Katie Porter. And I've said before that I think between Schiff and Porter and Barbara Lee, there's, you know, some pretty good opportunities, even though, you know, Schiff will probably run away with the money game. But there's great opportunity to have some representation in the Senate in California from from one of these great progressive players. And Katie Porter, I think, is tremendous. But the fact of the matter is, in our culture, AOC, because she is younger, she's Latina, and as I've said before, is more aesthetically pleasing in the mainstream sense that makes her a target, I think that she just absorbs so much more criticism than nearly everybody else in the political spectrum. So, I mean, on the right, I guess, what do we have? We've got Lauren Gropert. (laughs) Oh my God. Can we talk about that for a second? I mean, I think she was given a handy to the dude in the middle of a show. First of all, Um, family values on display, giving a handy in public to somebody that owns a nightclub, I guess, that has uh, gay nights and uh, drag shows. So fascinating. I mean, on so many different levels. Party of family values, just showing it off. So is Bobert the AOC of the right? Hardly, but fascinating. Because we're interested in what she does, right? Because, uh, you know, she's Kind of putting herself out there as, uh, you know, sexy little gun-toting, shot-firing, handy-giver. Anyway, you see, this is why I need 99 in the studio. She would have shut so much of this down already that, uh, but, you know, leave me to my own devices and uh, my mind does wander. Moving on, we got Nick M who said, first off, all I want to say, I'm a big fan of the show. I started listening at the beginning of the Socialism series and now I'm hooked. At the end of the Bidenomics episode, you put a call out to your listeners for suggestions for phone-a-friend guests. I think an excellent guest would be David Pakman from the show of the same name. I think it would be great for you to have him on to discuss two major topics, comparing and contrasting social democracy and democratic socialism, and a discussion on the current state of our economy, Bidenomics trends, and the near future state. I'd love to have David on the show. I think it's uh, uh, certainly doable. We've had a nice collaboration with David in the past, and... uh, with Best of the Left and David Pakman, those were the only two early places that allowed us to promote UNFTR to actually get off the ground. So I think David would definitely be open to it. Although I have to say, my man is a monster now. 
I mean, just even since we started UNFTR, I think he's gained like a million subs on YouTube. I mean, he's got like kind of a, a pretty big and mature progressive media network going on there. Uh, very impressed by, by what David's been able to do. So I'm sure he's a super busy dude, but I will endeavor to do that. And I think it's a great call. Now, Ray Fraff, a buddy from Dan Under, said, Max, I'm still a bit unsure about your position on the professional political class. Now we're getting into the socialism series. The reason I bring this up, or the reason I bring this book up, he's referencing a book that he, he dropped there, uh, is because the intro talks about democratizing our workplaces in the sense that the typical hierarchical structure of a company is authoritarian instead of being a fully democratic space. If we can instill politics and democratic processes in more aspects of our lives, like in the workplace, as the book suggests, wouldn't we all ultimately become so well-versed in it that a political class is irrelevant? Ray Frack is hitting at kind of at the heart of two things that we are covering in very short order. So the first is the episode that we have on the labor movement in the United States and the, you know, the recent spread of strike movements and direct actions. The second is going to be the epilogue to the socialism series. The labor one, I think, is coming before the epilogue. But Ray Fraff is bringing in a very important theme that kind of ties the two together. I think the big question that we're all struggling to answer that we're, and that, that I'm trying to drive to by going so far into the past to look at different movements in the past and you know covering it in the socialism series is how do we transform the system that we have? Or does the system just have to fall to pieces in order for us to build a new one? Where are we in history? Now, obviously, we, we can't tell the future. We don't know. Is capitalism just suddenly going to come, you know, cratering, uh, you know, and falling to pieces and just come crashing down around us. And so that a new, you know, society is built on the ashes of capitalism and destruction. Some people think so. I don't, but some people think so. I think that evolutionary slash revolutionary change is possible, but it has to take multiple looks. And this is really going to drive at the heart of what we're going to talk about in the epilogue. And how we're going to set up kind of the next sort of season of Unfucking the Republic. The labor movement is a piece of the puzzle. But I'm not confident that the labor movement in the United States, as it is currently constructed, is capable of affecting change on a mass scale. I think that a new vision for labor is required. Likewise, and we'll get into that in the labor episode. Likewise, the reason I think that we still need a political class is drawn from, let's say, the Fabian example in the UK. Unless you're willing to, as we've said, burn the barn to get to the nails. If you're looking to change the system and take it over in order to surge to the left in a significant and meaningful way, you have to have people on the inside that understand how to run the political apparatus. How many times have we seen throughout history moments where either the working class or maybe it's a, a military uh, you know, coup, something has happened where a takeover ensues. But the political class is not ready for prime time and, and prepared to run the new system. That's not to imply that you take a Kautsky-like bureaucratic stance on, on how best to evolve a system. But you have to have people who are prepared to govern. Activists and people who are prepared to govern 
are sometimes different people. And sometimes the activists make the worst authorities in a governing class. If you think that we need to be governed in an area like the United States, in an economy like ours, in a world that we have molded to our likeness, it is very hard to think that we are going to have some sort of movement or uprising from the bottom that will take over and eliminate the need for a political class and have the state so-called state wither away. I just think that's fantasy land. But I do think that there are pieces of the past that we can learn from in order to you know, begin to transform our future in a more progressive way. It does involve activists on the ground. It involves labor. It involves the workforce, but maybe different in, in how we've conceptualized the union movement in this country and, and kind of where it's gotten to. And, you know, I think you need professional political politicians that are guided by an intellectual class that generally comes out of academia. But also that intellectual class shouldn't be part of the mainstream governance of whatever comes to, to, to pass. I know I'm not making a whole bunch of sense right now, but the bottom line, Ray Fraff, is that I think it's a piece of the strategy. Anybody that's relied solely on the political class, on a revolutionary political class, and, and did not get the buy-in of the people, of the working class, of the activists, and, and, the, and the intellectuals, has fallen on its face or turned into some sort of quasi-authoritative state. And I think we can look at the Soviet Union as the prime example of that. We can look at you know, how things evolved in, in places like Venezuela or other places in South America that had authoritarian coups that took over but weren't ready to govern, even though they might have come in with a socialist mindset. There's a, there's a way to do this, but every situation is a little bit different. I can't speak to Australia. Don't know how our, our boy Albanese is doing down there, uh, but I'd be curious about your feedback in a place like Australia versus the place like the United States, because even though you have alliances and you're part of the global marketplace, it's still its own kind of, it's its own animal. And I wonder if class revolutionary movements are more possible in a place like Australia than they are in the the ridiculously interconnected type of, of uh, country like the United States. Moving on, we've got snail-powered. The anarchists seem to have understood that lack of organization is what so often dooms these movements. Here we go, building on what Ray Fraff is saying. I married into a very liberal family while being raised in a very conservative family, and my mother-in-law is prone to saying that we have to get out into the streets and protest because that's the only way things change. I tend to agree with her, but I think she's really missing that before we do that, we need to organize. Without the bombing and the Haymarket affair, might have turned out extremely different. So often the popular movements I know of get to be easily demonized by a few people acting in a way that is widely objectionable and businesses and governments opposed to the movement can use their organization to sway wider opinion away from supporting the popular movement. Once again, if you doubt that we have the best, most educated listeners in the world, um, here you go. So right back to back, we've got Rafe Raff and Snail Powered really striking at the heart of how to change our circumstances. Is Snail Powered's mother-in-law correct that we need direct action in the streets? Yes. Is Rafe Raff correct that we need to change the culture and the organization of the working class, specifically the way that unions are put together? Absolutely. Do we need a professional political class, as Rafe Raff was questioning? I think so. Do we need an intellectual class that isn't uh, as, as sacked by careerism inside higher education and, and, and afraid for their jobs? 
so that they can be truly free to be the intellectual class that we need and not sort of the faux intellectual Jordan Peterson type of class that we have now? Absolutely. All of these things need to come to fruition. And even still, you can't predict when the revolutionary moment is upon us. But all you can do is prepare. So I agree with Snail Powered's instincts here in that, yes, you have to take to the streets, but you got to do it with purpose and you have to have organizing skills. There will be moments like the Black Lives Matter movement where you take to the streets and then you build the coalitions as you go and you create momentum and hopefully that momentum sustains. But I think even with BLM, you can see that the pushback from the corporate class, from the media class, from the professional class and from the right was so organized and swift that I'm not sure that we've seen as much benefit from the BLM movement as the size of and, and strength of the BLM movement on the street pretended. So you, you kind of have to match it all and do it all and then also be prepared that you, that revolutionary spark, that moment, it may never come, in which case you have to be prepared to fight within the system and to fight through bureaucratic means to take over the levers of power and begin to undo all of the terrible things that the corporate class has done to this country. Now let's get into some general feedback. Elena S., our buddy down in Mexico, says it appears that Mexico will have two female presidential candidates in 2024, Claudia Scheinbaum and Xochitl Galvez, although there may be some independent candidates. Claudia represents Morena and the continuation of AMLO's Cuarta Transformación. Her grandparents immigrated from Europe to escape the Nazis. Xochitl is the candidate chosen by the Mexican oligarchy, and her plan is to eliminate all of AMLO's social programs and to allow the neoliberals in to continue the sacking of our government. By the way, please send a shout out to my best friend, Janet Pryor, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. What's up, Janet? So great to have you in the fold. Appreciate you. And we love your best friend, Elena, just so's you know. So... Amlo is is kind of an interesting character. He, he's I, I would consider him, I guess, center left. Uh, has done a lot of great things. Uh, was willing to play ball with Trump, which I found troubling. Has done some really good things in terms of reinstituting, reimplementing some social programs that had gone by the wayside during the the height of the neoliberal era in Mexico. Uh, but I'm not sure that the gains have been substantial enough to uh, to you know clamp down on corruption and certainly gang activity in Mexico. I would certainly look to Elena to provide some more color and context on that. But AMLO is definitely a very important point for Mexico to begin the shift back to the left, which I think we've seen play out all through Latin America, which is which is amazing. If Xochitl gets in, I th- it's 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 interesting. I mean, she's already said that she looks forward to working with Trump. I watched some interviews with her and it's just like, oh, boy, here we go again. I think there's some great interest and some fervor, specifically among the corporate class in Mexico, to have somebody like that and less of a reformer, even if even if Obrador was just more reform-minded and more of a figurehead, and at least some of the social programs did come back. And that is so important because in America, we don't think about, in the United States, sorry, Elena doesn't like it when I call it America. In the United States, we don't think about us as a crucial member of this of this hemisphere. We just think about ourselves. We're the beginning and the end of every conversation. But the recent trip that some of the congressional caucus, the progressive caucus members in Congress took down to Latin America 
is sort of a nod to the fact that there are social movements that need to be fostered in Latin America that will be so important for us kind of diversifying uh, the supply chain, you know, carving new pathways to allow for better, more fair trade agreements to flow between us and Latin American economies. I mean, the Latin American economies are brimming with such potential, but not in the neoliberal way that Milton Friedman conceived when, you know, he and the Chicago gang went down, starting with Chile, and then, you know, introduced the market economy philosophy that left so many at the bottom of the rung uh, poorer than, than they started. There are great social movements happening, and it would be such a shame to see Mexico surge back to the right with a figure like Xochitl. Because, you know, there is momentum that can be capitalized upon. Going over to Pastor Tim, who says, for the record, Earl the Pearl Blumenauer is my congressman. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. My Facebook page, yes, I'm old. I have one, too. Is fronted by Rosa Luxemburg, quote, those who do not move do not notice their chains. I gave my socialist kid a copy of Jacobin's board game, Class Warfare for Christmas. And I like the nuanced defensive AOC. It was honest and raw, and we need more of that shit and less eating our own. This is serious business, and as another community organizer slogan goes, it's going to take all of us, and it's going to take forever. There will always be a further range, another injustice, another issue. If we kill each other off, we'll never make it. Couldn't agree more. Hear, hear, and thank you to Pastor Tim. Now, Ryan Kay from France offered a suggestion for a perfect little movie. I've never heard of it. It's, uh... Le vie est belle. Le vie est belle? I don't know how to fucking pronounce any French words, so I'll just say le vie est belle, and it's about the Holocaust. So thank you, Ryan, from France, picking up on something that I put in the newsletter last week, which is just a couple perfect little movies. One of them I think uh, I had in there was Dogfight from years ago with River Phoenix. It's not really as bad as it sounds, right? Free cocktail, free beer, and... They gotta be polite. Those are the rules. They gotta be polite. What rules? The rules of the dog fight. I just thought it was a perfect little movie. Little Miss Sunshine, perfect little movie. If you have ideas of perfect little movies, I don't know why I'm on this tangent lately. Um, but, you know, let me know what you think. Sam E said, Hi, friends. I'm still about five episodes behind, so I'm not sure y'all have talked about what's going on with the Department of Education in Oklahoma. Apparently, the state's secretary of education is recommending that prayer be brought back to the classroom. Oh, great. The Ten Commandments be posted. Oh, sure, why not? And if that's not enough, the jack wagon has certified PragerU as a valid instructional tool for public schools. He's attempting to insert their material into the curriculum. What the double fuck? Yeah, this this PragerU into curriculum is is so insidious and so stupid. And even, you know, th- this idea that we should have prayer back in schools. I mean, that's when that's when you look for the activism of something like uh, the, the satanic church doing great stuff. It's like, yeah, great. If we can have prayer in there, let me just rattle off my satanic prayer to start the day. And, and uh, or let's do it eight times a day and uh, we'll, we'll, you know, have some Muslim prayers and chants in, in school. Let's let's just fucking have it all or stop. Just stop. This is the stuff that they do to distract us. This is culture war shit. This is, you know, prayer back in schools. I mean, this is like, this is such an old playbook, you know. And and I think John Stewart was, was recently interviewed saying that the reason this stuff bubbles up to the surface is because the GOP doesn't know how to govern. 
They don't have to govern. They don't need to govern, right? They don't have to do anything. All of this stuff, you know, tends to appear in these red states that lag so far behind in education indicators and economic indicators and health indicators. But that's what they'll focus on because it galvanizes a population that has just fallen for these really cynical narratives that distract us from building, organizing, and helping everybody. Anyway, thank you, Sammy. I wasn't aware that that was happening in Oklahoma, so thank you for bringing that out. And Aaron N. said, if he does request... Oh, Aaron N. thinks that uh, I should be given more credit for my voice artist work. Well, that's very nice of you, Aaron N. And then said, if he does requests, I might have some ideas. I absolutely take requests, but I also know that my... My voice work is pretty amateurish. I mean, I, th- I think I have a credible Giuliani. I think I said that last time. I was really happy with how the Giuliani turned out in the parody, but, you know, that's such a specific take. You know, my Trump is abysmal. I don't know. But yes, I take requests, and I think it would be fun to try and do some, so let me know. Let's go over to social media. On the Facebooks, on the main page, we've got Sherman Dreadnought, who says, so thankful for the resource that is this podcast. Well, let me tell you, Dreadnought, I'm more thankful that you think it's a resource and that you uh, that you follow along and are, are a pretty significant contributor to the space. So thank you. I appreciate you. Are you a member of the Unfuckers at All Facebook group? Because if you're not, you're missing out on some really fun stuff. Now, the American Elena, Elena S., said, I don't know. I think maybe Max should have broken it up into two drops talking about socialism. Pre-war and post-war. I feel like I need a political compass thingy for socialism now. Put the anarchists in one quadrant, Marxists into another, revolutionaries in another, non-revolutionaries in another, then scale one axis with collectivism versus individualism and the other with traditionalism versus extremism. Um, wow. It's <laughs> a fucking great idea. I'm sure there's a resource out there that I can uh, borrow from liberally to try and uh, put that out there. Should I have broken the last part up? I think I think everyone was exhausted enough going through the history of socialism that I felt like the last one, I just needed to get it out there. But it was long. And I did have the sense, you know, like halfway through that I was like, I could probably stop here and just release another one. But I thought if I was like, okay, now there's six plus an epilogue that people would be like, Jesus, God, enough. And the last part of that story, it's so funny that I got all the way there. We didn't talk about the Russian Revolution. Because the Russian Revolution, to me, is the beginning of the end of the, of the socialist movement in in the world. I, is that a hot take? I, I don't know. Um, I, I I think it's kind of backed by by fact and facts and logic, because everything since then has been different than the original intent. How much does original intent matter? That's one of the questions that I'm trying to to tease out. Should we be looking at classical Marxism or even? you know, Bakunin and Proudhon's anarchism as as bedrock and foundational for how we move forward in the world? I don't think so, only because you can't, you know, just, you can't build entire systems and theories around what Smith and Kinney thought. You also can't do it around, you know, what what Milton Friedman thinks or, or Friedrich Hayek. You know, anybody that tries to come up with a, a one-size-fits-all global system for you know, how to mobilize the masses for the benefit of all you should just be writing textbooks in, in theory. When it comes to pragmatism and doing stuff on the ground, the point of going through all of those old chapters, it almost doesn't matter what quadrant they fall into, Elena. I think it's like, just understand what each one of them was driving toward 
by understanding what they were responding to. Because again, the, the, the situation on the ground in the UK, vastly different than what was going on in Spain and vastly different than what was going on in the furthest reaches of Eastern Europe. And we didn't even touch on African examples of socialist movements, the black Marxism movement that uh, developed in the United States, you know, the communist movements or socialist movements with people like W.E.B. Du Bois, certainly what transpired in South America, which is its own completely different path that I want to tackle separately. Just going for, you know, the European and American examples, we were all in a different place when these theories were developed. And so they took different forms. And depending upon this, those circumstances, how economies were built, but also cultural differences, things evolved differently. So the, I think the point of the exercise is to get really close to what we're trying to accomplish, what we're responding to, and how these ideas can evolve. So one of the books that I have on order is uh, Participatory Economics, the Paracon movement from Michael Albert. And I'm interested to see, now I think that's more 80s, early 80s, maybe into the 90s, an idea that, that emerged of how we can create a global participatory economic system. I'm anxious to figure out what that's all about. I think Thomas Piketty is kind of the leading figure in today's movement, calling for a return to socialist theories, but built upon the market-based constructs. So I, I think, again, leaning more into the social democratic movement than the democratic socialist movement. But, you know, if we don't know these definitions, we don't know the foundations, and we can't see our circumstances clearly and give, and, and also give credence to the sheer size, magnitude, power, and corruptible strength of capitalism, then we're doing ourselves a disservice in trying to figure out where we can jump in today to affect real change. And I want to make these things actionable. And the only way to do that is to learn from whence we came. So hopefully, regardless of where anybody falls on that quadrant, hopefully what we've done is at least develop a shared language so we can talk about these things in shorthand to say, yeah, but remember, that's what the anarchists were trying to do in France as opposed to the trade unions in Spain that were way more radical, way more, you know, hell-bent on terrorist activities, uh, but also still very closely aligned with the Catholic Church in strange ways. So uh, we have to take all these factors into consideration. Dan M. said the key point for bringing this period forward to today is that the working class does not need to seize power. Interesting. Fact is, they've always had it. They just cannot wield it effectively without coordination. And the capital class is very, very good at dividing and stoking conflict within the working class. We're watching it unfold right now, Dan M. It's such a great point. We do have the power as the so-called working class. At the same time, I don't think we actually have a definition for the working class. And I, I think that a lot of people's definition of the working class would include people who do not see themselves as working class. It's such a fascinating thing. And that is that is the result of the decades-long propaganda campaign against trade unions specifically, teachers' unions, anything that would denote a class that was organized along strict labor lines. They've demonized these classes to the extent where there's a lot of working people that are in the service sector or that are in the uh, sort of the more digital end of the economy, as an example, what they, I think they loosely refer to as like the, the thought economy, 
people there that are working and laboring that are all part of the wage slavery system. Maybe they're in uh, right to work states, you know, but whatever they are, they're they're not protected by any sort of organized movement. I'm not sure that a lot of those people would see themselves as working class, even though they are. So defining the working class or coming up with new ways to organize workers versus the corporate class is part of this movement. And it's why we need new words and we need new identifications for how to show who the bad guys really are. Because I don't, I don't think a lot of us really know. And that's why there's so much finger pointing. And that's why it's so easy for the corporate media, for example, to pit us against one another. Just look closely. Even the way MSNBC talks about the labor movement and the direct actions and the strikes and the way that certainly the conservative uh, side of the spectrum and then any of the financial news reporting outlets, the way that they talk about the labor movement and the potential destructive nature of strikes and uprisings in the working class. And it's just, it's going to be total cataclysm and it's going to bring everything down to its knees. Even some of the liberal end of the spectrum are like, you know, hopefully they resolve this wage slavery issue soon so that everybody can get back to work and just go about their day inside the system and stop rocking the fucking boat. You know, Ah, anyway, over on Instagram, we got deep pow seven stoked to see you on the gram. Love you guys. I used to never miss an episode when I was driving for UPS. I listened to every minute of You, 99, and Many Faces. I retired, and I have a different gig that doesn't allow for constant podcast listening, so I've got some catching up to do. Keep pushing. I think you make a difference. I hope so. Thank you, Deep Pow 7. Good on you. Enjoy retirement. Mm, But it sounds like you're doing something else, too. So enjoy whatever that gig is as well. Now, let's just quickly rattle through some stuff over on YouTube. Like I said, there are, uh, I think, uh, varying responses to the AOC episode. So we'll get through those first, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, some feedback on the Carter series. By the way, thank you for everybody who answered the call to go uh, watch the Carter videos and leave some comments. It's not working to juice the algorithm, but it definitely made uh, it, it made the pieces more interesting. And uh, hopefully someday, you know, as a matter of record, they'll be picked up. The bottom line is, Episodes two and three aren't going to do nearly as well as the introductory episode because two and three cover things that YouTube believes is sensitive and or uh, controversial, such as the Iran hostage crisis in part three and the the Middle East peace negotiations of the Camp David Accords in part two. Those things are apparently taboo to talk about even as part of the historical record. Bullshit. Anyway, on YouTube... Rude LLJ1 said, I've listened to every episode you guys have posted as part of the podcast. I'm always impressed by the content. You guys are incredible. You're definitely a douchey looking basic white guy, which I am also. Keep up the great work. And folks need to leave AOC the fuck alone. The F alone. Much more polite than I am. Which is ironic since your name is Rude LLJ1. But thank you for commenting. I appreciate it. Now we've got Philip Borer 1656. I literally unsubbed over this episode. Corporate Dems are not the answer, and anyone whose political power is tied to corporate Dems is not the answer. Literally disgusting he put this out after all the stuff about socialism. You know what's 100% not part of socialism? Cross-class collaboration to suck off corporations is not socialism. Grow up. Well, I don't know how to specifically respond to that except to say that I, um, I think I made a different point. And I think I've been making different points, and I think that uh, it actually coincided 
quite nicely with the socialism series because there is no one size fits all. Now, if you're a straight up anarchist, I mean, straight up anarchist and not even an anarcho syndicalist or not a democratic socialist uh, or a social democrat or or a Marxist, I, I, I mean, I guess I could see that uh, there's no there's no situation where somebody who is progressive minded with a with a, a root of understanding in socialist theory should be part of this political system, meaning anyone that gets elected, no matter who they are, just by nature of being part of the system is bad. Because I think that's what this is saying, unless I'm unless I'm missing something. But anybody who's going to be an elected official anywhere inside this system is bad. And the only thing we can do is just live off the grid and live in the woods and be a classic libertarian, an anarchist. Don't tread on me. There's no such thing as property. Nothing. Nothing. I don't, I don't know. I mean, what's your point? Sorry you unsubbed. Would love to continue the dialogue. Grow up. <laughs> Grow up is funny. Grow up. <laughs> anyway, EG or E Green 9841. By the way, you know with uh, 99 not here, I'm probably mispronouncing like everybody's handle. Anyway, E Green 9841 said, phone a friend with AOC, please. And I highlighted this one because obviously I would love to interview AOC. The best part about it was the Many Faces official account chiming in with, yeah, and uh, Max, you'll definitely need your audio editor there in person for that one. You know, for science. <laughs> Manny chimes in, in in fun places. I always love when I see a response from him, like I'll be on the Facebook or in the at all group or Instagram or YouTube or whatever. And he just sort of sneaks in. His comments are always great. JRV Home Inspections. I followed AOC from when she was primary in Crowley. She is, from my view, one of the most transparent and open politicians in Washington. She constantly posts on social media and is not always political, which is great because she's a regular person lets us see that. Refreshing. Is she perfect? Do I always agree with her? Nope. Perfection should not be the enemy of the good. Her critics are looking for attention and clicks, as Max pointed out. I wish we had a dozen AOCs in Congress or more. That's uh, pretty much where I line up. I thank you for that. Now, Dan Martin 309 said, uh, and this is regarding the Carter series, said Reagan and company sabotaged Carter from well before the election, giving Carter a life and death task he could not ignore saving hostages. Even though this was publicized ceaselessly, most voters were more interested in the economy because at the end of the day, they had to be able to put gas in the car so they could get to work for paying for housing and food. Yeah, so I agree. So uh, I think I mentioned at the end of uh, part three that Carter had, in interviews in recent years, had kind of indicated that he believed that were it not for the hostage crisis, that he would have been reelected. Um, and I disagree. I, I, I agree here with what Dan Martin's saying, that um, I think what, what Reagan did effectively is he, he, basically, he basically just neutered the administration. I mean, he just, he took away all of their, any power that they could have portrayed, any tough hand that they could have portrayed, any way to communicate with the American public was kind of just dismissed and taken away from them because of the hostage crisis. And the fact that Reagan's people, plus the trilateral commission members, specifically Rockefeller and Kissinger, were working against Carter and he didn't know it uh, at the time was bullshit. By the way, I don't think Reagan is to blame as much for that piece of it because I think it was very apparent in the in the negotiations that Khomeini was not was never ever going to be prepared to release the hostages 
prior to the election. The, the negotiations just weren't taking shape that way. How much of that was a political calculus that he wanted to upend uh, electoral politics in the United States, I, I mean, is impossible to say. I don't think anybody really knows that. What I do know is that the longer he held them, the more likely it was or the more political capital he had because, you know, he's just sitting there with uh, with all of the cards. So why not hold those cards as long as humanly possible? Why the inauguration? Well, that was just to, to embarrass Carter, for sure. There's no question about that. But I don't think the negotiations would have been concluded. And I think Carter's wrong. I think it was absolutely inflation and unemployment. I mean, there's just no question. And even when you look at his approval ratings heading into it, when he was taking direct action on the economy and he was really paying attention to it and he was doing everything that he possibly could to stem the tide of inflation uh, and to try to curb unemployment, his, his numbers would stay rather favorable, especially when you look at how bad things were. You know, people were, were genuinely rooting for him. And I think, so the hostage crisis, Reagan's portrayal of the weakness of the Carter administration in the hostage crisis sort of chipped away at Carter's armor. And it made people less, you know, willing to listen to him that he had any answers, especially, you know, during the, you know, the downturn. So, and Specker, hey, our, our buddy Specker's back. Specker365 said, hey, Max, happy Sunday to all unfuckers. I know there are more exigent issues and you have tangentially hit upon him so many times, but it seems Reagan needs to be understood in the same way Carter does, though for vastly different reasons. Anyway, love this series. We definitely have to unfuck Reagan. We did it a little bit when we did uh, the episode regarding him and Greenspan and the con of a lifetime that they pulled uh, with social uh, security deductions back in the day. And then all the Reagan tax hikes. So that we'd specifically addressed. We didn't talk about all of the shit that Reagan pulled off. So we talked more about Clinton than Reagan. See, I, in so many ways, I feel like Reagan was the one that changed the focus that changed the culture and attitudes, did some terrible things. But the biggest thing that he did was change culture and attitudes in the go-go 80s. And, you know, turning against the working class, turning race relations back on its head, you know, turning the clock back in so many cultural ways where we were moving forward that he stopped that type of cultural progress. So he loosened the cap. But the one who took the cap off from, just from a, an economic perspective, was Clinton. I mean, it's so clear to me that Clinton was the height of what we would consider the Chicago school neoliberal era. Reagan did as much as he possibly could and certainly would have done a lot more if the political norms were different. But when you had a Gingrich in, you know, changing the way that we legislate and a, and a Bill Clinton so determined to pursue this folly that was his free market new Democrat strategy, that's when that's when everything coalesced and aligned for the neoliberals. Reagan was terrible. Reagan was awful. There's no question about it. And we do have to unfuck Reagan. But I think the way I want to go about it is to actually unfuck Reagan and Thatcher simultaneously because I think that they were the one-two punch that together did more harm than any one of them could have independently. Anyway, let me know if you think that's a good strategy. Uh, Thundercloud 2.0. This needs more attention. I was speaking to some friends yesterday about this. Thank you for making this very informative video. Now, that is about the Convention of States video and the episode that we've done. So I redid that on YouTube because I think it's important and we're nobody's talking about it. 
but you can be damn sure that they're still working on it and that they never stop working on it. Just because we're not talking about it doesn't mean it's not happening. And finally, this is what I was talking about above, about finally having to do the uh, FMF video. Keynes versus Friedman. This is from Ikapunk3415. The free market is not only the most efficient system. Here we go. It's also the only fair system. Really? Government intervention inherently relies on unequal treatment under the law and on violence. Okay. Classic libertarian stance. Violence against me and my property is the only violence that exists, and that's what government intervention does. I like how you critique Friedman by saying he believed markets could solve anything, while conceitedly believing you, a simple man, can single-handedly find a better solution than the one found by millions of human beings. The market is not a mystical thing. The market is the people. As Hayek said in The Fatal Conceit, the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design, end quote. Uh, I don't disagree with what Hayek said. Most people really don't understand stuff. I get it. This is such a classic libertarian Chicago school take on the markets can cure all type of philosophy. See, a lot of people believe that my criticism of Friedman, at least in in the way that it's been, you know, given back to me in comments online, is that you know I'm all for like a, some sort of like full communist takeover and and state run everything and centralized economies, centralized planning, and all that kind of stuff, and that government should be involved in absolutely everything. Uh, free markets are the way, and free markets have delivered us from uh, the feudal society. Critiquing Friedman is not a critique of markets. But believing that there's any such thing as a free market is the failure of understanding here. You'll have to go back to the FMF episode, Ecopunk 3415, though I know you're not listening. But it is why that I feel like I, I have to commit the FMF episode and some maybe some updated thoughts on free markets and, and eventually to bring Bernard Harcourt on the podcast, at least to demolish the idea that markets are free. And that government intervention is inherently bad. (sighs) Anyway, you're all up on all that stuff. I don't have to tell you how we feel about that. But it would be good to revisit. Coffee donations. Great friend of the podcast we just heard from, Specker. Bought 20 coffees. Said, just to catch up, still love you dudes. That is so fucking cool. And like ridiculously generous. So thank you, Specker. Wow. Our by Snail Powered joined Glenn S. from last time in the Upgrade Club, moving from pro to overcaffeinated. Snail Powered. Top of the top. Joining Glenn and a whole bunch of other unfuckers that are making this thing go. Indo Baller became a member, and so did Steve S., by the way. So thank you to our new members. Thank you for the upgrades. Thank you for the coffee donation, Specker. And thank you to everybody who keeps on keeping on. Next time, more 99. I promise. And for now, unfuckers, catch you like catch you next time. Wow, I fucked that up. Holy shit. For now, unfuckers. Peace. For those of you that don't know Naomi Wolf, go Naomi Wolf. And Naomi Klein is often mistaken for uh Naomi Wolf. <laughs>